Welcome in, everybody, to another edition of Sad Times. I'm your host, Kevin. This is my favorite part of the week, where my voice does the radio thing. The radio thing is what I've always wanted, mainly because I have a face for radio. This is Sad Times, and for those of you who have never listened to this show before, here's a brief primer. Um, Each week we have a very courageous uh, and generous guest who comes on and talks about times that they were upset, sad, angry, went through some terrible times in their life, um, and talks about how that affected them what they were thinking at the time, any number of things, because we as human beings all have very difficult times. And um, often we don't talk about those as much as maybe we should. And the hope is that uh, with this show, we will allow people to come on who are kind and generous enough to come on and they will share their stories with us so that people listening at home who who might have gone through something similar will feel a lot less alone. Uh, the hope is that people will, will feel a little less alone when listening to Sad Times. And if you haven't already, we'd love for you to make sure that you're subscribed uh, to uh, the podcast and have the settings where you download it every week. We, we come out every Tuesday. We'd love for you to download it every Tuesday morning. And if you are interested, like our guest that we're about to bring on, to be on, you can email us at sadtimeskc at gmail.com. That's sadtimesk as in king, c as in cat, at gmail.com. Please shoot us an email, and we would love to talk to you about coming on. We'll let you know how it works. Uh, before we get to our guests, let's get to this week's sponsor, Another one that Brent has found for us. Today's sponsor is the United States Midwestern Accent. We are happy to be the least attractive and interesting accent in World Accent Magazine for the 244th year in a row. That's the United States Midwestern Accent, where musicality goes to die. Wow, that's... Man, I didn't... 244 years in a row? I mean, that's... Good job, us. But... Anyway, enough about that. Speaking of accents and speaking of international, uh, we have Kevin on the show. Not this Kevin, but Kevin from Scotland. I believe in Dundee, Scotland. Kevin, how are you doing today, man? Morning, Kevin. I'm good, thanks. Yeah, that's right. I'm from Dundee. Just to give your listeners who may not be aware where it is, uh, if you know Edinburgh, 70 miles north of there on the east coast, 70 miles south of Aberdeen. So it's equidistant, obviously between the two wee bit of background on a town just before I, mm-hmm. uh, I start talking about myself um huge um industrial base certainly around the turn of the uh, 20th century so 199 you know early 1900s um basically the the uh, one area of the sort of well to do area of Dundee had actually outside of London the highest number of millionaires per square mile in the entire empire. Really? Based on, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Based on three things, jute mills, um, because the jute um, was imported to from India, then it was used for basically rope, for sacks, anything like that. Second one is journalism. Um, there's still a local paper by DC Thompson that still runs to produce a lot of magazines. So if anyone's seen... Uh, Beano comic, or I think it's Dennis the Menace. You guys have cartoon series mm-hmm. that was all set up in Dundee. And thirdly, is um, basically Killers for Jam. Um, story how Marmalade started was basically the a Spanish ship um, from Seville docked in harbour. The fruit wasn't doing so great, so it wasn't. It was. It'd been held up a couple of days, so it wasn't right. It was overripe. 
So the this local guard basically bought their um, fruit anyway and decided to make it a jam. And you can still get Keeler's uh, marmalade and other jam products all across oh. certainly the UK. So really, I mean, what's happened since then? So massive uh, working class employment, a um, lot of Irish immigrants around the turn of the same time in the Victorian era, uh, just due to famine, due to opportunities that weren't available back in Ireland. Mm -hmm. And yet very strong working class traditions. Uh, unfortunately, with you know decline of basically any manufacturing, and especially when uh, Margaret Thatcher came in in the 80s, uh, this city was decimated. Um, one of the highest... Um, unemployment rates, certainly in Scotland. Um, we've got we had the highest number of uh, drug deaths in the whole of Europe last year. Now Dundee size was population about hundred thousand people, and a lot of people like myself are alcoholics. I don't even know the number there, but it, I'm, I'm imagining it's pretty high. So it's starting to come back now. Uh, computer games have big uh, presence in the city. Oh uh, wow! A lot. A lot of people, and same with uh, biotech, life sciences. Problem is, you've got a lot of people with very who are not university degree educated in particular fields. So there is historically quite a high level of unemployment, quite a high level of de deprivation. Personally, I'm not from a working class. I'm from more middle class families. Classify it. I went to university. Uh, studied. In six months in Singapore, I was lucky enough to do that an exchange program. Wait, uh, sorry, how old were you when you were in Singapore? Um, I was 19. 19, okay, and I do want to yeah. go back. You mentioned Margaret Thatcher. Um, uh, yeah. Talk about sad times. The first time I read about Margaret Thatcher was a very sad time in my life, and I, I did not have to live under that. Uh, but I imagine it was just uh, what you're saying, the decimation of the working class, of manufacturing and everything. It just had to have been... Like you said, feeling the effects of it to this day. Oh yeah, absolutely. Still, still playing catch up. And it was the same in uh, Fife next door to us, where there was a lot of coal mines. Um, they've all closed. Same in around Lanarkshire, more towards Glasgow. Glasgow itself, shipbuilding, he heavy engineering. That's all gone. As is steelworks and all of that sort of stuff. And it's been very little to replace it. Mm, sadly, yeah. for a lot in a lot of areas, you know. Yeah, which has obviously led to problems with drugs and with alcohol, and then you know a general sense of hopelessness. People having not very good lives and want to get out of it. You know. Yeah, yeah. They they look for that escape, um, and it sounds like when you were in university, you you said that you were in Singapore for six months, and then you yep. what did you do? You graduated from university. Yeah, I graduated from. Uh, it's called that land economics, so it's basically commercial. Uh, real estate appraisal. Okay. So but, uh, one thing is I was the first person at the university history, of course, to win the sort of um, best marks in appraisal two years in a row, which oh, wow. was a big deal. Yeah, so uh, everything going for me. After that, I moved out to London to take a role as a, a, as a trainee. Um, was doing all right there. Mm -hmm. From there, a bit lonely, didn't know many people in London you know, lovely city to go for a weekend, but it's a very hard city to live in with the grind. And then if you don't know anyone, it's quite an unfriendly city. People tend to stay in their groups. Mm -hmm. So I, I struggle with that. I struggle with a bit of loneliness. Um, met my, my wife at the time there. She was Irish and we'd been dating for a while. 
Um, and basically what happened was, um, I don't know if you remember this, because it would have been early 2000s, there was a dot-com burst. Sure. So London especially was, was huge for dot-com industry. That bubble burst. Unfortunately, it was just after 9-11, actually. My, my wife was unemployed at the time. Well, she was going to start a course. Couldn't do that because she was ill. Mm-hmm. And then from there, couldn't get any work because it was it was basically a small recession. So this is you're uh, saying this is right after uh, 9-11, September 11th? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so and when did you when, when did you two get married? Well, we moved to Dublin. Okay. And then we sorry, we got married in January, first of January two thousand and two. Okay. And and then by March we moved over. Reason being I couldn't afford to keep us living in London on my salary. Yeah, it's, and she it, couldn't get very work. expensive. Did you go to Abbey Road at all? No, I didn't I didn't actually get the opportunity. It's funny because there's so many things that tourist attractions that yeah. when you live in a city, you just don't even think about going to you. Uh, I'm you that know, way I, in I, Chicago. I, I very much and I you know, there's a something in Chicago called the architectural river tour or river cruise or whatever. And uh for years I was like, I don't need to do that and then I ended up going on it and it was great. So anybody who's coming to Chicago, do the architecture river cruise. Anyway, um but I hear what you're saying, right? You don't go to where God walked on the street like at Abbey Road um, because there's yeah yeah and you know you just mentioned it 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 had to have been unbelievably expensive but you also said that your wife at the time was Irish so you guys moved to Dublin and you guys settled in there did you guys grab an apartment or what where, where'd you guys live well, there sure, what happened was it was a funny well funny story uh, what happened was there was our, um, my wife's uh, granny had died so there was a a, a a spare house going while the will was in probate, basically for a couple of months in Dublin in a pretty rough housing estate at the time. Um, I mean, I don't know if you listeners maybe seen Father or Ted, but it was a bit like that. There was one morning when I was off ill from work and I opened the door to go to a local pharmacist and there was actually just three random stray horses just walking about the housing estate. Really? Which was a bit, yeah, it was a bit surreal. It's there, there was uh, a traveller's encampment down the road, and basically they they love horses, so there were these horses that are just roaming about the estate, um, which was a bit of a shock to the system. Um, so yeah, we stayed there a couple of months, managed to get some money, and then we moved to a better area, just just uh, along the road. Um, started renting for a couple of years. Basically, our careers were going pretty well. I worked in financial services. Um, my wife was a, a press officer for one of the big Irish political parties. Okay, so she was working long hours. Um, and we one weekend a month. So it was very much. Although we were mad that I didn't see a lot of her unless the the the. Doyle, the Irish Parliament, was out of session because obviously the, it was pretty intense. Sometimes the parties you worked for were, were the main opposition. Mm-hmm. So it was quite challenging, especially around election time and yeah, any like she controversies could get, or scandals. She could get so called she, at any hour or just absolutely. expected to work late into the night, right? And that... Yep. Um, I have, and, and I'm sure, you know, I have been in that position before where I, I've worked long hours and it, it is very, it can be very difficult and it's obviously exhausting. So you guys are there, you're hanging out with the horses, um, your yeah. wife's working a lot. Did you guys start uh, a family of any kind? 
well, what happened was uh, we bought our own our own house, the Irish. Uh, Accordingly, was absolutely booming a time. Mixture of uh, the a uh, couple of countries joined the EU, so could travel to Ireland straight away from Eastern Europe. It's like Romania. We're talking um, Poland, Bulgaria, places like that. So obviously the Irish economy is booming. So if you're a migrant, one of those, or if you're living in one of those countries and have skills that basically need beauty the EU is you can travel anywhere. You don't need a work permit. So a lot of builders and the sort of tradesmen came over to Ireland because they were going to earn three, four times what they did back home. Fair mm-hmm. enough. That's, that's what I've done. Basically, that's why I'm there. Um, so there's a massive um, housing property bubble. Hot property prices increasing all the time like crazy. Low interest rates because the rest of the EU is going through a rough time financially. So we, we bought our own uh, two-bed apartment in a development. Lovely. Moved in there. Both doing well at our jobs. Both enjoying it. And then my wife got pregnant. Once things were a bit more central, uh, certain about the pregnancy, we decided to buy a three-bedroom uh, townhouse in the same development. Now, unfortunately, uh, this was at the top of the market. This was just before the financial crisis led by subprime that led to Lehman's and all mm-hmm. of that feeling. Um, so we were stuck in a situation that almost straight away... Um, Unemployment went up and up and up. Obviously, with the building trades, uh, it was quite surreal because I worked in one of a few um, kind of high rise, and by high rise, I mean seven, eight floors in Dublin. Wow. So, we had a great view across south side of Liffey to the north, and you just saw tons of cranes. I mean, was one day I, just before the crash, I counted about 30, 40 cranes from all the new development going on, and suddenly. Things started getting worse. You saw that the crane starting to go away. Um, because I worked in finance, I was keeping an eye on uh, something called a credit default swap. What yep. that means yeah. is if I yeah, if I own a thousand pounds in bonds, um, and something happens to say the bank, and it's an insurance product to prevent me losing my money. So the price started going up and up and up, first with Icelandic debt, and they went bankrupt uh, as a country, bailing out their banks. Secondly, it was the the Portuguese and then the Italian and then ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically ended up with Ireland having to stand in as a country and because our banks had all been massively exposed to the property market, um, and building and giving mortgages, buy-to-let mortgages, financing developers. Essentially, they're all bankrupt. Um, so Ireland as a country needed to basically guarantee them. What that happened was in space of a month, um, the IMF came in to run the Irish economy. Um, so that was bad times. That was sad yeah. times for everyone. Yeah, sad times um, for everyone, right? And when, so when that got- happened in the line of work that you were in, did that yeah. affect your line of work? Oh, absolutely, yeah, because what happened was uh, we, a couple of the big clients that Irish office had, we lost those. They just closed their products because there was no demand. What that meant is we needed less people in a lot of departments. My department I worked for had to lose certainly one of the people at the position I was at, and this is where it fed in. My daughter was on was about one and a half. My son was born then. I had to take a good bit of time off 
because my wife's pregnancy had been difficult both occasions. Okay. Uh, but, you know, she had high blood pressure, so I was needing to go from work and uh, get her back to take to the hospital. I was uh, uh, dropping the kids off in, in the morning at crash. So it was me who was doing that. So if the, the guys had been sick or worried about our temperature or that, it was me who was having to stay home all the time. So obviously, when it's four of you, one of you, has other commitments and can't guarantee to work all the hours God sends, and the other three can, well, it's fairly obvious he's going to be getting shown so, the door. Yeah, so you got you got laid off. So it was like a perfect storm of the financial crisis and then the responsibilities of you taking care of, of your, your daughter and your son. Now, you had said that your, your wife at the time, she had difficult pregnancies. Were you aware of that? I mean, obviously, uh, th- that she was oh, having yeah. that trouble? No, absolutely, because it was a uh, preeclampsia. So, ah, yes, it got to it got to a stage where every week she'd be going to get her blood pressure checked. It would be too high. So, eventually, as soon as I knew she was going going in, I should have just taken a bag with us. And the thing is, because she was in an open ward, it wasn't restful. You know, her blood pressure went up and up and up, and she couldn't sleep at night. So obviously, her, her condition kind of got worse. Um, last couple of weeks, she was she was in hospital certainly for the first pregnancy. So that was that was tough. And never mind the financial stuff, because essentially, like I was a millionaire on paper between um, good salary and kind of sixty, seventy thousand euro when you get. Bonus included, and it was performing well. But you've bought a mortgage for a flat that, on paper, is about two hundred grand uh, in, e- yep. in equity. Mm-hmm. We bought it at the top of a market, so there was a period where we were on paper doing really well financially. And but then, as soon as that market crashed, we immediately—I think or the lowest—we lost about half the value in the house. Wow! Um, and so, we actually, you know, because this crash, there were so many uh, people trying to let properties or what have you at the same time couldn't get it let. Managed to finally, but for less than the mortgage was. So you're having to pay essentially a mortgage and a quarter, um, and all of this sort of stuff. And you're also out of work at this time. Yeah, so exactly. Would, I'd, I'd lost my job, obviously. I mean, what it, would you have to quit? Go yeah, ahead. I'm sorry. I mean, you guys, yeah, you guys, I think, if I remember rightly, your rate of um, unemployment was about 10.1%. Ireland, it was 25%. So 25%? You yeah, you guys were in a recession. We were in a Jeez. depression, essentially. So where where would lost. people go who had had lost uh, like you and and twenty five percent? Where would they go? Like, what would you have to do um, in light of losing your job? So I know a lot of people um, certainly either if the migrants just moved back home, uh, a lot of Irish people historically would move to uh, New York states or to London. Um, and obviously times were tough over there. I didn't because I was married, had two kids, blah, blah, blah. I didn't have the same flexibility as, mm-hmm. as other people did. Um, and so I didn't, didn't really have a choice just to stay there and tough it out. I mean, just to give you an idea, I don't know how, how people in your country collect benefits now, but I'm on benefits at the moment. What happens is I have an initial appointment, give my bank details, they get paid directly to that. In Ireland at the time, uh, you had to go down and stand outside the Dole office every morning or once a month, say. You weren't given an appointment time. You just turned up, 
you had to wait in a massive queue outside and basically hope to be seen before the guys went for an hour and a half lunch. Jeez. If you had to, if that happened, you'd go back in the afternoon. Um, so you'd either keep your place and stand there or just chance it that you'd be seen. And if you couldn't sign on for any reason, you get your benefits stopped. You wouldn't get any money. And this no line that you're in, is it outside? Aye, absolutely. I mean, my worst was uh, worst experience that really still affects me to this day is it was a particularly cold, uh, wet day in Dublin, uh, sort of snow stroke, hail stroke, just really pouring down. And both my kids were sick. Um, <sighs> so I did them both in the buggy down and stand outside the office for, I think, about an hour and a half. Um, in that sort of weather, I mean, luckily, you know, plastic cover to put over the buggy and that, but, you know, it's obviously kind of tough to feed my son in the queue or you couldn't even rock him to sleep or anything because it was just that bad. I mean, I was miserable and certainly felt it. So that really affected me. And um, how did that, obviously. did you, yeah, yeah, and with that situation, like I know you, you said you went down once a month. Um, and was your wife, your wife, um, she recovered? Did she, she, was she able to get back to work? Oh yeah, she was working for real. I mean, fair play to her. Uh, my, my weekly dole money was basically paying for our shopping because obviously we've got a team of difference. So both kids still in, in nappies, diapers, and scum, you mm-hmm. know, it's a, very expensive. So yeah, she was working. I think there was a bit of resentment there, obviously in frustration that I couldn't get any jobs, but that, you know, she was maybe a bit uh, sheltered from that because she was a specialist in her own area, had a great reputation. Whether I'm just just another, essentially another monkey, um, a highly trained one, but just a monkey, you know. Yeah, and so, well, I don't know if you're that, but uh, you know that did that lead to the two of you kind of drifting apart then, especially if she was, I assume, going absolutely. back to working those long hours again. Yeah, because we'd, we'd uh, yeah, I mean, I was basically, apart from one day a week, I stayed at home and looking after the kids because um, okay. we couldn't afford the crash fees, obviously. So there was a lot of pressure on, on her shoulders. And eventually, you know, it's just, you both drift apart. The rows get kind of bigger, um, all of that. And then just before Christmas, I managed to land myself a new job. Um, and Christmas Eve, we'd had a great day in town. I was starting to think things were looking up, and what did I get? Uh, I got a letter from the uh, Irish equivalent of the IRS saying, by the way, your former employer hasn't reported your tax affairs correctly, so you actually owe £20,000, or uh, euros, whatever it was. So that obviously destroyed... Christmas and just led to a lot of stress on me, more problems, starting a new job, all change. And eventually it got too much. I came in from work one day and my wife was crying and asked her what was wrong. She said, I don't know if you don't want to be with you anymore. So after that, um, basically, that's the first time that I really kind of turned to alcohol. Um, I'd beat up a binge drink before a social drinker. Mm-hmm. But that really kind of started that. I'd moved into a separate room. It was very awkward, very tense around the house. Um, basically, I was struggling with work as well because, you know, of everything else going on, I told the, the guys the day that it happened uh, or the day after that morning, and they were sort of like, we'll just get I was expecting them to say, well, you're in a frame of mind. Your 10-year marriage is <laughs> finished. Yeah. Maybe just go home and just take a day or two to get back on it. But it was just like, couldn't give a monkeys. 
What was really couldn't care. What was the work that you were doing at this time? It was it was similarish to the job I did, but it wasn't directly. It was a slightly different department of financial services. Gotcha. So I was trying to get up to speed, and I was trying to be a team leader for a couple of people who were maybe their attitude wasn't the best sort of thing. Um, so I found it very, very challenging. And then this happened on top of that, plus that tax bill I mentioned, plus the negative equity for both properties. Mm-hmm. Um, probably that was about 400000 for both of them, if not a bit more. Um, so And just the home environment not being great. And then me obviously uh, starting to drink, basically, just to, just to get out in the evening to avoid being in that environment. So it was, it was kind of like you had said that you were, you know, a binge drinker, et cetera. But yeah. you now started, If t- correct me if I'm wrong here, the way I say this, you kind of started to rely on drinking as an escape. And it was like almost something that you looked forward to. Yeah, it was just basically I'd go, go in, put my kids to bed. Um, then my wife was a vegetarian and she never cooked my food for me. So. You know, my daughter especially, it was very close to me, so she enjoyed me putting her to bed. Sometimes with, she had a bit of anxiety, so would, I'd have to stay in the room with her for up to an hour. After that, I can then start getting my own tea cooked. <laughs> and then, but basically, once I got that done, um, rather than sort of go up to, like, my room um, and sort of sit there and that, basically, I'd, I'd either take take cans into the house, kind of sneak them in, or I just go to the pub and sit in the pub and drink and read a book or whatever that, just to escape that atmosphere. Mm-hmm. So that's when it first kind of started. Uh, after a couple of months of that, it was just too much. I was I was mentally pretty much, it was very close to a breakdown, probably as close as I've come. So, um, you know, my wife, actually, at the time, or ex-wife, gave me the money to just get a flight back to Dundee, and I just moved to Dundee, uh, went back to Dundee the next day. Um, my dad picked me up at Edinburgh Airport. I just called my employer, said, that's me done. Um, so you had to, and, so when you went back, you also obviously had to sever from your job. So you're not only yeah. leaving, you know, your marriage of, uh, of a number of years, you're also leaving your two kids and um, yep. you go back to, and your dad picked you up at the airport. How old were you at this time? I was th- 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 31. 31. I've been, okay. been married since when I was, uh, let me see, 22. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, did the drinking continue then when you, when you got there? What happened was I'd, I'd basically, my dad had kind of, my, my uncle, his younger brother was an alcoholic. He he died at 43 from basically cirrhosis liver. Um, I mean, I celebrated that last year when I was in AA and reaching 44 because I always thought I was going to be destined to be like him, just die really early. Um, so my dad kind of pulled us aside and kind of, you know, gave, gave out to me, you know, sort of read me the right act. From then, I stayed with my parents for a year, which was a bit humiliating because I'd, I'd left um, home when I was 18. Um, mm-hmm. So obviously it's a bit of a, uh, my parents weren't too happy about me moving to Ireland in the first place. So it just felt like, and they love telling me that <laughs> just uh, I, I made a bad choice in that you know what i mean which is is maybe not the most helpful so yeah that's that's tough to hear it's like yes i'm aware you know yeah, i made that well, choice exactly. i'm i'm, I'm with the consequences eh? right so um 
I was lucky enough in that I got a job in a call centre. Okay. Um, after six weeks of being employed, now the problem for me mentally was it was less than half the money I was getting in Ireland. So I'm used to having money. I'm used to not really having to worry too much about getting a weekly shop or you know, if I saw a nice, I don't know, suit or something or a nice shirt and tie, suddenly I'm I'm having to worry about I can't afford it. I rent, I'm paying maintenance on top of that. A uh, small amount, big amount to me, but for my ex-wife, a small amount of money, you know, but it's just felt honour bound to keep on paying it. Eventually, I'd moved in with one of my colleagues from work, so I had a room in his place. That was all right. And from there, I met my uh, a new partner. Um, okay. Basically, I'd, by that stage, when I was out, um, moved out of parents' house, yeah, I developed uh, a drink from then, first from... Um, basically depression ever since I moved back from Ireland I'd been really you know feeling bad about stuff it turned into depression between the loss of job lap of South Wharf there's, there's no sort of prospects as I saw to improve myself without going back to uni full time which I couldn't afford to do because you know, I've got maintenance to pay and all of that sort of stuff. So can so, I ask you this? I want to ask you this too, because, you know, I've certainly been down many, many times in my life and I have uh, turned to alcohol and it is a temporary solution, right? And how did yeah. you, as you go through that, you're having a tough day. Maybe you were at the call center, uh, you get done and you just kind of take stock of things. So you go and you, you do a lot of drinking. How, when you felt when you woke up the next morning, like how did that settle with you? Were you more depressed than ever or was it something that you just kind of got used to? Well, that for me, I mean, you know, I've had problems with depression, with anxiety, alcoholism, they're all tied in. So yeah. basically I start feeling really depressed because I wasn't doing as well. I wasn't fulfilling my potential. Um, I wasn't earning a lot of money. I was seeing my, my friends who had moved in with being, single or not having commitments like me. Yeah, the mortgage share, but I'm sure I was paying most of that or certainly half of it. So we always had money, you know, and I was feeling like I'm missing out. Um, mm -hmm. On top of that, I'm newly single. Um, not a particularly attractive picture to paint to a potential date on Tinder or whatever. Oh, yeah, I work in a call centre. Yeah, I hardly have any money, you know, that yeah. sort of thing, um, unfortunately. So that was like really low self-esteem. Um, so that combined with depression, getting really depressed, I started drinking to feel a bit better about myself, you know, get mm -hmm. that buzz, get just feel like kind of happy-go-lucky, change yeah. my mood, and then it gradually slipped because alcohol is so insidious from that to, yeah, feel more depressed the next morning, feel stupid, feel like a waste of money, so then I drink again, and slowly it turns into two things. When it becomes a pattern, you start forming it, you start getting used to it, you start needing more alcohol. And it also, it's, it's, it's very cunning in that once you get a taste, you feel like you, you, you kind of need it and you've got so much free time to do in Scotland, certainly in Dundee. If we were to go out about seven o'clock, so about now my time of day, really the only place that's open if you don't want to go for a meal and our, our pubs, if mm -hmm. we're meeting friends and even it's in a pub, that's just how it's done in this sort of culture so it's very hard to avoid alcohol um, and on top of that it, it's got to the stage it got to the stage and it still is now until recently where I'm drinking because 
I want to basically get to, a, I want to just almost get to oblivion so I don't have to think, I don't want to have to deal with what's in front of me. Do you? Um, what things are like for me, you know, mm-hmm. because I just, I can't handle it. Yeah. Um, you know, that's my attitude. It was just, this is terrible. Um, Do you know the play so, um, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof by any chance by Tennessee Williams? I have heard of it, but I have not um, watched it either live or in cinema, unfortunately. Well, I, no worries. I It just made me, what you just said, Brick, uh, the main male character, and it has a line about, he's a he's a big drinker, and he has a line about how he drinks until he feels that click. Um, and yeah. that's that's just what, what that made me, that reminded me of that, so that I, I just wanted to, to, to say that. Yeah. But I did catch, I think that you said that you met another partner, is that right? Another? Yeah, that's right. So, uh, basically the way it went, I had a problem with alcohol by then. I was very, like, most of the time when I'm drinking, um, I'm very charming, quite witty, mm-hmm. quite enjoyable to be around. So we moved in pretty quickly together um, into her house and Basically, yeah, so everything was going great. She wanted the kids. I wanted a kid as well because, you know, I knew it was a good daddy. When I was there seeing my kids, I was a good dad. Um, and just she was pregnant. We had a couple of unfortunate miscarriages, tough to deal with, but we are pregnant with my, she got pregnant with my son, Jack. So everything was great. Um, and later she gave birth to my daughter, Annie. And they were both really traumatic Um Oh, for her. First one during delivery, she almost died. She lost a hell of a lot of blood. My son was uh, basically not breathing when when he came out, out and um, they tried resusc- They just took him straight out of the room, and apparently he was getting resuscitated for six six minutes oh. before he finally came around. I didn't know any of this was going on. I mean, I was sitting beside my partner, and she she was actually. Um, a doctor, so she was telling me after she wasn't, she was so scared because she knew how much blood she was using just by her colleagues behaving the way they were behaving. And I was totally oblivious to this, obviously. I was just thinking, going, all right, I knew Jack was, was, was obviously in trouble, but I didn't know she was as well. Um, what you mean, uh, she was in trouble, meaning your partner was in trouble? Yeah, absolutely. She'd lost a hell of a lot of blood. Oh, that um, I see what you're saying. I'm sorry, yeah, okay, yeah. and. So obviously, it sounds like your son was okay in the, in yeah, the long run. Uh, okay, good. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, that was brilliant. Um, and then really, it was just just she started getting um, some painkillers um, prescribed to her. Okay. Unfortunately, now remember, I'm a I'm an essentially a, a functioning alcoholic. Uh, although I'm kind of abstaining until the evening until Jack's gone to bed or whatever. Um, she developed uh, an issue with prescription painkillers. Um, so essentially we're both addicts. I didn't know this had happened at all um, because, I, I, you know, she was, um, I, I just assumed it was natural after such a difficult pregnancy that mm-hmm. she would be tired a lot. Um, and she had my daughter, um, Pretty close to my son. There's 18 months difference between them, so she was pregnant again pretty quickly. Um, and my daughter was born, and I was working. Things were going okay. Well. Were you still and speaking then, to your um, your first two your kids back in Ireland? I was, and at that point, I was going over since I moved back. I'd always gone over for two weeks during the summer holidays to help with 
childcare arrangements and on and around their birthdays. Oh, and good. I saw mm-hmm. I was went over again for both kids' first day of school. So yeah. Um and that was when a lot of my money was going for was saving up just because my pay was low and my uh, I was basically staying with my ex wife when I was over there, just in a separate room obviously, um just to essentially help out be, you know, help her out around vacation time for her work and stuff sure. like that. So um anyway, so I was I was drinking um certainly in the evenings and you know, but I was doing that every evening after the kids were in bed when they started sleeping a bit more regularly. Um, obviously, my partner was particularly maybe concerned or paying a, a, a lot of attention. And that led to a situation where she'd basically gone online and tried to import uh, what she thought was oxycodone and tramadol. Um, now, so one day I'd been, Wait, uh, let me just make sure I understood that. Yeah. She went online and tried to basically get some drugs illegally sent to her. Is that, yeah, is that what you're saying? Okay, yeah. gotcha. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Go by, by uh, sorry, I'm doing air quotes, doctor who'd signed the prescription. Mm-hmm. So what happened was, uh, I, I was particularly stressed at the time about a variety of issues. Mental health was, was rubbish. I'd been signed off work as unfit to attend pretty shortly after. Um, um, in the uh, picture of the house, which looks over the front, from out the window, looking over the front of the house, um, I fed my son. He's just playing in the, the next room. And suddenly, this is about half eight or back of eight in the morning, there's um, like 10 people walking up towards the door in suits and stuff. So knock on the door. I'm in my dressing gown. Go up and it's an arrest warrant to search the house for drugs. So... From there, and uh, at this point, did you know that she had uh, attempted to get these drugs imported? Not a clue, so, because she was she suffered from quite bad insomnia. So, like, I think she was doing it at night while I was asleep. I see. Um, and then when the, uh, the any packages would come, I was at work during the day, so I wouldn't see it. I didn't even know because obviously. And then, you know, it was just that she just said she was tired and that would be understandable after looking, looking after two, you know, yeah. 18 months for a, and a, you know, six, nine month old um, all day. So I totally got that, you know. Uh, so, yeah, didn't wear a huge shock. So next thing we know, uh, police are searching the house, uh, social worker obviously called because it's a drugs thing. We've got two small children. I'm um, taking upstairs with both strip search, which was fantastic. Um, and, and basically, we had our, our you know, phones, um, mobile phones, we had our uh, computers, laptops, anything confiscated, and that was it. And from there, things kind of got worse. I felt very kind of betrayed and hurt, um, which was ironic because I obviously had an addiction and I was you know, losing trust in her and all of that. So eventually, pressure got too much. We split up. I, I felt I just couldn't trust her, um, yeah. which was a bit hypocritical where I was standing from. But I guess I would say well, I was doing most of the stuff openly because it was pretty clear I was going to a pub and stuff in the evening. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so we split up. So luckily, uh, my parents let me come back and stay with them. And that's when my addiction spiraled um really i was you know telling her i was going out to the gym and i was going to the pub i was sneaking alcohol in. i was sitting up drinking in my room um eventually got to the point where i'd, I'd 
you know, like any alcoholic, I'd done anything I could for uh, for money for alcohol. So we're talking stealing stuff, money, jewelry, pawning it, everything that you do when. Did you say you were you stealing know, things? Yeah, so money okay. in my mum's power, sort of jewellery and pawning it, all of that sort of stuff. That's the sort of level when you're alcoholic, you reach, okay? Mm-hmm. It really is. Mm-hmm. Um, and from there, quite rightly, my parents then basically gave me some money for a deposit for a room in a place um, and just said, look, off you go. Um, you've got to stand up for yourself. If you split up with anyone again or whatever we're not going to take you back and you know now I was very grieved at the time but after knowing what I've put them through now fair enough I would say so I got a a room in another house just because that's all I could afford and basically after three months of me being there the landlady asked me to leave um, just I wasn't particularly abusive or rowdy or anything but I think she'd had she alluded that she'd had some uh, domestic violence in a pre and relationship with her ex-husband and felt because I was drinking a lot it was around her too much of that so fair enough so basically I got my own place um, in not a great area of Dundee I stayed there for a bit mm-hmm. and then I met uh, another partner who I, I have a daughter with Okay, so and when been, was this? This was 2019, so just before the pandemic. Okay, so, so and did you move in with her? I I moved in with her. Okay. Um, so bas- basically, um, with hindsight, not just a terrible a terrible choice. Um, she had borderline personality, which I never dealt with. I never heard of until I deal with it. Uh, I mean, my first wife was not physically abusive because she was four foot ten or something, um, but she was very verbally abusive. Like I still, from when we split up, if someone is shouting mm-hmm. uh, in the house, and I've had this with every partner I've been with, whether not necessarily me or but it might just be out of frustration or out of something else, nothing to do with me, I will immediately sort of cringe and be absolute, you know, sort of on my guard. Again, I'm not a doctor, neither is my sister, as the listeners know, but I believe that's a, the, the um, very much a symptom of PTSD where yeah. things like that and then you go – your brain goes into fight or flight, and it sounds like you were, right? You're saying that you were very much on your guard, so – and this was the, the verbally abusive with your, with your first wife – and now you've moved in um, right before the pandemic uh, with, with yeah. a new woman. And, and so obviously the pandemic hits. Uh, that is destructive to everyone in, in so many different ways. And, you know, you've said a lot, a lot of times that, you know, when you were stressed out, you would go to the pub, go to the pub. You know what I mean? Yeah. And for a time, that must have been not possible. So, how, you know, what? how did you get through that? Well, I thought. At the time, uh, just to explain, when we first met, and this is how I know I shouldn't have had a relationship, was because she went to have one with me, and she didn't seem to mind me drinking 20, 25, 30 cans of lager a day, okay? I was having to get up in that night um, to actually have a couple of cans of lager to make sure I didn't have the, you know, kind of withdrawals. Mm-hmm. Um during overnight and I was getting up at six in the morning my first thing would be I'd have breakfast about ten and you know be honest by eight o'clock I'd be I'd be 
had five, six cans, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and the worst would be if I timed it wrong and I hadn't bought enough cans the night before because in Scotland you can't buy alcohol until 10 in the morning. So that was my life. That was me, I thought, probably at the height of my addiction, actually, uh, as an active addict. And, you know, basically, luckily, I'd actually made the decision just towards the end of February to stop um, stop drinking. Uh, I wanted to stop, and I was gradually reducing from middle of February my alcohol intake down because basically the doctor said to me, I was drinking too much to just go cold or I would have had a seizure or anything off that. So mm-hmm. I had to reduce it gradually. Um, so it's a bit it's a bit kind of um, counterintuitive to say, well, I want to stop drinking, right? You just taper it down. You can't just go cold turkey, you know? Um, luckily, I got off that in the space of a month, which was just wow. when the pandemic hit. And that was, the doctor said, no way you're going to do that. It's going to take a couple of months to get it. And how it was during the pandemic is I was absolutely fine. Um, during the, the lockdown, we had multiple lockdowns in the UK of multiple duration. And what when I found I started having a problem was when the pub started um, opening back up again. And that's when I found that I was really struggling. I was essentially a dry alcoholic. What is that? that? No, what um, can you explain what you mean by dry alcoholic? Yeah, so basically, I'm an al- I've still got an alcoholic mindset, but I'm I'm just not drinking. So I still want to drink. I'm still actively looking for it, and still you know be thinking about it all the time. Um, got it. It's it, and it's a horrible sort of situation uh, to be in. So from there, things opened. We had, we had a daughter together. She's she's now two. And things started really going downhill, especially around me drinking. It would basically, she she had an abusive relationship as well in the past. Her ex-husband uh, was like that and drank a hell of a lot and, you know, beat drugs and stuff. And basically, it seemed that when I uh, had a couple of drinks, even if, you know, I was fairly mild, I wasn't whatever, I wasn't aggressive, or if she knew it had a couple of drinks, that would, I think, trigger her, and because then trigger her uh, borderline personality, and then it would make things very difficult um, for everyone. So finally, we had a, we had a big row, um, basically I was arrested, I was in police cells from Friday afternoon until Monday afternoon to appear in court. I was then, um, you know, kind of left and basically that was a splurge. Didn't want me back. So that was me homeless. Um, Wait, you ended up homeless time. after that? Yeah. Yeah. Cause I had nowhere to go, you know, I right. Your parents had said you can't my come parents home. Had said no chance. Um, yeah. Not even for a night. And, um, you know, obviously she didn't want me back. So, you know, that was, that was a pretty sharp shock. So after that happened, obviously still had the daughter together. I couldn't see her for over a month. Um, I, I'd spent the first two weeks of being homeless absolutely uh, smashed. I was drinking as much as I could. Couldn't bring drinking out in uh, my, my flat, which was a godsend. So I was drinking out in the pub. Uh, I, I never kind of drank in the street. I, I'm not that type of person or I just thought for whatever reason, just self-esteem and self-worth I don't want to be hanging about outside just drinking cans you know, Yeah. so that helped 
after about two weeks, I went, right, okay, well, this is just not going to do anything. This is stupid. Um, I, I've got a choice here. I either keep on going and, and die of it, or I can, you know, really take this seriously and, and try and get myself sober. And when, um, and so, when was this? Sorry, just trying to follow the timeline. Yeah. This was this was June last year. June of 2022. Okay, gotcha. And yeah. so, um, okay. I, and yeah, what? So, Go ahead. Yeah. Sorry. So so I started going to E, um, and it was it was working actually really well. Do you know, I had about um, five months of sobriety, and maybe one or two one day kind of lapses where I gave it a temptation. I had good few beers and then I've got the attitude now I've been guilty, felt guilty so many times where I've not been able to stop my drinking and I've had a, a lapse mm-hmm. and for me the worst thing you can feel was guilt and remorse and you know if only and I wish I hadn't done that that's just a waste of energy so very much from my experience what I do is I say right you've had a, you've had a lapse, forget it Learn what you can from what caused you to do it and just make sure tomorrow, say, I'm going to get right back and be sober and build up from there. I have to, if I have to say that that's really, look, uh, that's really admirable to be able to do that, Uh, especially as you said, you're somebody who struggled with depression and anxiety, man, that voice in the head when you mess up, you know, it can be very brutal. So the fact that you have been able to um, get there, I I think is, is a real um, uh, you know, kudos to you. It's just for look. I'll I'll go say from my experience. Every time you you have a lapse, if you let it go on into the next day, it could be a week, it could be a month, it could be three months. You know, it it's harder every time just to just to say right, I'm going to stop. So the longer you you keep going drinking, you know, the more difficult it gets, and not all of us maybe get another chance to to get sober again, yeah. you know, because of whatever, you know. Um, so that's that's kind of what I've learned from there. So about August um, last year, I'd started dating someone. Um, been homeless nine months at that point. We, we've been on fantastic. Uh, this is a recurring theme here. I moved in with her in, in um, uh, where was it? Start of October. Okay. And then... I was I was going up and down to Dundee four times a week. So it was about an hour in the bus. I had community uh, work service to do basically for uh, what had happened with me getting arrested. Um, so I was trying to get that done. I was trying to see my daughter uh, with contact. So I was up in Dundee four times a week. That was me getting up at half five in the morning, getting on the bus, starting work all day, back in the evening about seven. And I was it was hard going, but I was in my routine and enjoying it, enjoying doing the work, enjoying seeing my daughter under a tremendous amount of pressure from from my youngest daughter's mum. Basically, I found out from social work that um, what happened was the previous se- last seven months of our relationship, she'd been having an affair. Um, and as soon as I... Um, moved out or was thrown out more accurately. She did everything she could to stop me seeing my daughter. Uh, the person she'd been having an affair with basically moves moved in within two weeks of me getting kicked out. Um, he had 
a bit of a criminal record. I wasn't exactly happy in either of social work. Um, and yeah, it's just been tough. I mean, as far as I'm, as I'm aware, we're still together. And but you know, my ex was being fairly sent fairly abusive emails. I can't contact her because I've got like a restraining order against me because of my conviction. You automatically get one in Scotland against you for a lot of um, you know ongoing sort of harassing and, and just fairly abusive emails, all of that sort of stuff. And mm. it's it's hard to deal with. Um, but I've got to keep myself right. Um, so what happened was basically morning of I think it was the 7th of December, I was doing really well, sobriety. That was me about six months sober. Well, give or take, about six months sober coming up for the next week. And I got up to Dundee and basically I'd sat down to have a coffee before I started my community service mm-hmm. and uh, felt, uh, didn't feel right. Uh, slurring my speech. Um my arm and leg, all my left side felt really heavy, difficult to move. Um, I was kind of drinking coffee and sort of dribbling over myself because my, my mouth was paralysed on the left-hand side. Um, let the guys in, in the community service team who was with it won't know what was happening. They called an ambulance and I was taken up to the local hospital and, because basically I suffered a stroke um, oh. at 44. So um, that was me in hospital for a couple of days, got out, um, and my mental health just went through the floor. Uh, yeah. Basically, I love reading. I couldn't have the concentration to read. My leg was fine. I had a limp for a bit. Uh-huh. My hand, my arm was, left-hand side was problematic moving, especially my, my hand of my left. I'm left-handed, so that was a real problem. I still got a bit, even now, of a, a drooped, you know, sort of left-hand side of the face, especially if I'm tired. And my speech, you can probably tell, it's pretty good. But if I'm particularly tired, if I have a really busy day, um, I can start slurring as well. I mean, just like I had a busy day recently and my dad thought that I'd gone back and started drinking again just because I was quite slurred on the phone. So it's kind oh. of a double-edged sword and, you know, no no fault or blame for him. I can understand that because at the end of the day, I'm an alcoholic and he just forgot that because he's used to seeing me recently where I've not been too busy and my speech has been good. So I can understand. Still hurts a wee bit, but you know what I mean? Um, it's just one of these things. Yeah. So, so Kevin, I, I want to say something here too. Um, and I know we spoke about this briefly before, uh, but reading is like my big respite, right? When 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 yeah. everything else is really fucked up and I'm having a really hard time, I know that I, I take solace in that I can read. So when I hear that you weren't even able to read, and, and you even said much earlier in our conversation today that even when you'd go to the pub, you would read. And this is just yeah. what you love to do. And so losing that just had to be just a triple blow um, to your mental health as well. And I, I did not see my daughter. I know the stress about how things would go given that the the community service order of a certain amount of time to complete it. And, you know, it's worry about I've got to go back to the sheriff. What's he going to decide on this? Because I'm not well enough to do it. You know, that, that sort of way. And mm-hmm. then just feeling useless about the house. I mean, I've since I've been moved out when I was 18, I've always done. Certainly my, my fair share of chores or all the chores if I'm living on my own. So just feeling I couldn't even help with that. 
um, couldn't even walk like 400 metres. And I'm a relatively fit guy. I played rugby for when I was 12 and I only retired at 40. And why did you retire? Well, uh, I've had 10 concussions in total. Did you say Um, 10? 10, yeah. The last last two I had um, when I was... 40 and they occurred within six six months of each other um your one of your uh, guests recently would was a, a green brain he was talking about from his mm-hmm. experience of tbis basically with you know hearing voices um slurred or garbled speech i've had all of that when i was 41 and i always thought it was just one point, I thought the house I was living in, which was like about 150 years old, was haunted or something because it felt like someone was called or someone did call my name. And I was just looking around. I was in the house on my own and didn't know what the hell was going on. Um, I mean, now it's been taken more seriously. I wouldn't mind have getting have gotten that looked into, but unfortunately, the, the strokes left with brain damage, so um, I'm not going to get to the bottom of. What's caused? What well, I know for a fact, stroke was caused by a lot of pressure and a lot of just stress with my ex, with my daughter's mum, my youngest daughter's mum. What's busy, busy schedule plus you know a lot of other things and maybe something underlying from playing rugby. Um, but that's that's what I'm. So basically, my partner relapsed just before the stroke. Um, she's an alcoholic as well. She'd relapsed and. Even though it was obviously with friend evenings and at weekends, I was still maintaining my sobriety. But, you know, because I can't manage other people's sobriety, I can manage my own, but I can't influence what other people do. So, obviously, stroke, feeling so low, um, basically led to, me, led to me relapsing for about three months. Um and then last month, me and my uh, partner decided that we need time apart and both try and get sober. Fair okay. enough. So that led to me being homeless again, basically. Where I am now, same same shelter as the, the first time around. And, you know, I'm doing, doing good. Um, being sober, you know, what, about a month at this stage? Um, unfortunately, I just, just held out from her today that she... Um, doesn't want to continue a relationship, which is obviously hard, but I've been through harder. And <laughs> you know what? It's it's funny, I was just saying that to my dad earlier today. It's the first relationship as an adult I've had where we've agreed to part. Um and basically there haven't been kids involved. So, you know <laughs> it's it's, I, it's a nice change, yeah. Well, um, hey. I, I don't mean you know, to laugh, but I um yeah. it's, it's I'm so sorry to hear that. Me. You you just found that out today as we're recording? Yeah, just before. Just before. Oh jeez. I mean, I'm so sorry, just, Kevin. No, I mean you know what? It's a it's a shame. I'm I'm disappointed because you know, we were engaged and we we're talking about getting married. But do you know what? End of the day, Master Bright has got to come first and as long as I'm with her and me not being able to manage her sobriety. Because I can't. That's up to the individual. Um, basically, we're in a situation that if she had a relapse again, I may or I may not pick up alcohol again. But if she did, they make it that much more harder for me. So really, yeah. you know, I, I've just got to put... I'm disappointed. Eh? She's put herself first there, and I understand that. 
So, yeah, and you said you, you've got, uh, you know, a little under a month. And um, are you going to going to AA daily? Yeah, I am at the moment. And just as well, a day just at the meeting, um, my particular uh, home, home group that I go to, they were looking for volunteers because they've actually had to close three of their meetings um, just due to not having someone open the doors or, or volunteer to help out. I can't run a meeting yet because I've yet to be sober 90 days to do that. Mm-hmm. But what I've said is I, now that I've got a lot more free time, um, I'm certainly going to um, be along that helper at a couple that are short on helpers. So, you know, it's me doing my bit to, to pay back because I've had so much support from them and made some good friendships, you know? That's great. And so, um, I, so you, at 90 days, you'll be able to to run a meeting. Is that, is that what, what yeah, you're saying? Yeah, okay. a bit of training. You know, they'll give us a bit more than that, probably, just to, just to, because, you know, yourself, um, or, or you will have heard, you know, I, I know in my mind I'm sober. That's my, where I am right now. At this moment, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, mm-hmm. you know, and especially, I mean, this is the thing, it's a progressive illness, and the horrible thing about it is, you know, you don't get to a stage that you do with further illnesses where it's, so you, you you win against it, you get victory, you know, you have sort of mission accomplished banner on top of the thing, you don't have that. Every day is another day that it doesn't matter how many days I've been sober, you could you could pick up again, and if you do, two things to know: one, it's a progressive illness; two, I know from personal experience. This is why I hate the the term rock bottom because I know for a fact because I've been there. You don't hit rock bottom. You never hit rock bottom. What do you mean by that? If you, if you pick up again, no matter how bad you think things could be, at one stage I thought, "Oh well, I'll split from a partner." That's my rock bottom. Is that I'm drinking. I split from a partner. I'm drinking X. Next level is that was me. I thought it was at rock bottom. Rock bottom now for me is being homeless. You know, mm-hmm. drinking 25, picking up, getting back to where I was last time in terms of drinking drink amount that I thought was rock bottom and something that I thought was something that was a rock bottom in terms of events. And next time I pick up, I've gone past it. You know, it just changed all the time. So yeah. next for me would be, for for example, being being arrested and and put in jail. That's the only place I'd say pretty much less than alcoholic stories I haven't been or been homeless, been on the streets. So I, I can imagine that, you know, because that's my next rock bottom. Haven't got there yet. Well, good. And, you know, as you said, it's today you're not drinking and we'll see what happens yep. tomorrow. Um, exactly. on top of the AA, um, what you're, you're, you, you told me you had something called smart recovery. Can you just tell us yeah. a little bit about that, please? Yeah, sure. So it's, it's very, it's basically based on cognitive behavior therapy, mm-hmm. which, um, certainly in the UK we use for loads, if anywhere else, uh, any sort of trauma, like PTSD, did be well used to it, or obsessive cult compulsive disorder yes, sir. or indeed addiction to alcohol or drugs or gambling or sex or any sort of addictive um, action, that can help because it's essential to retrain your brain. Um, so I do both at the moment. I mean, I like personally, my personal ex- experience, my personal preference is A, just for me, mm-hmm. but everyone's different. And 
I, I, I just, it's, it's tough, you know, because, the, you know, we've got huge problems in Scotland with drugs, with alcohol. I mean, historically, we're, we're kind of up there with the Irish. It's having a reputation for being heavy drinking. And same with, you know, Scandinavians. So it's, yeah, it's, it's difficult. There's, there's basically, I'd widely say it's, the addiction services, certainly in the UK, and like I'm sure it'll be the same in your country, are very much, if you think mental health is the Cinderella service, compared with, say, cancer with stuff like that, then basically addiction services are essentially treated as Cinderella's sister from the bad side of town. <laughs> and, less, and, and less beautiful, you know? She's the ugly sister from the, from the worst scheme or housing estate in the in the town, you know? Because the you know, people just aren't interested, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Unless they're a celebrity. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Kevin, you know, often it is funny because it's true. Um, you know, and you know, I have to say this. You reached out to us at the end of last month and sent a really heartfelt email and we were able to get in touch last week. And the fact that you reached out, that you've shared your story with us today uh, with, you know, I hate the phrase, but we'll say it, warts and all, right? You, you've talked about it is, is a huge, just not many people can do that. And I, I just myself am appreciative that you would share your story. I'm very excited to hear um, that right now you're focusing on your sobriety and no one else's. And uh, I, I just can't tell you how much I think it's important of what you've done, what you've done to reach out, um, how you've shared your story and all of its, uh, you know, ups and downs. And, you know, I really appreciate it. And, uh, you know, I know that we are all 1000% pulling for you. And, you know, as we wrap up today, is, the, is there any, anything else that you would like to say to anyone out there um, based on, you know, kind of why you reached out in the first place or anything that you want to impart that maybe we have not covered yet? Sure. For, thanks so much, Kevin. For me, it's a couple of things. It's just to say, like, if you as a listener feel you know, any way touched by my story in terms of, yeah, this could apply to me. It might apply to me. Do I maybe need to think about my drinking? Look, no one's going to tell you you're an alcoholic. You know, and if you're honest with yourself, you know if you're drinking too much or if you want to do something about it. All I can say to you is I've been through a very hard path. And if one person, if I can help them to avoid having to go through what I've been through, brilliant. I mean, that's all I'd say is that I I wish I could have spoken to someone like me, but I was starting drinking just to say, you might think it's fun now. And yeah, it is. You know, I, I'm a Hulk, so I love drinking. I love drinking too much that I put it before everything else. And it's really to say, if you're in that situation, if you're thinking about it, just maybe you don't get it first time. Maybe you don't get it second time. I certainly didn't. I've, I've had more attempts to get sober and have fingers in my hand on both hands, plus those, and just keep plugging at it. That's all you can do. You know? Yeah. And just this maybe maybe think a bit more about people who are are addicts for whatever whatever problem they have. Because I tell you what, since I, I used to look my nose still at people in the street who you knew were alcoholics or or drug addicts. You know? Mm-hmm. And I tell you what, when you get in a hostel with them, I am an addict. I'm a junkie as well. 
you know, same as everybody else. It's just my uh, drug of choice is a bit more socially acceptable than someone who wants to, to you know, shit up or, yeah. or snort something or smoke something, you know. And at the end of the day, they're human as well. Eh? I am. <laughs> that, oh, I couldn't, I could not have said it better than, better myself, Kevin. And one thing that it amazes me about you, the, the few conversations we've had is how much hope you have. You said to me when we first spoke, you're like, there is hope. It's hard. And I believe you said, and I, I'm going to quote you. So uh, it's hard, but when did you ever do anything that is not hard? Yeah. Or anything worthwhile. <laughs> yes, exactly right. Well, Kevin, thank you so, 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 so much for reaching out. Thank you for sharing your story and being on the show. I, I hope that you and I keep in touch. We wish you all of the best, and I know that you're going to be able to, to continue to take it one day at a time, which is all you can do. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Kevin. Really appreciate it. And, but just thank you for the platform uh, to share my experience, and thank you for inviting me on. You got it, man. And um, to everybody else out there, you know, I like to end with this. You know, and I, I think Kevin is is doing this now. There's always room for kindness and grace, especially with yourself. I'm moved by the way that that Kevin is is taking this one day at a time and and allowing himself the grace. Uh, and I I need to remember that for myself. Uh, and I, I think we can all remember that there's always room for kindness and grace. As we said, if if you want to be on the show, you want to tell your story, please email us at sadtimeskc at gmail .com. And we'll see you next time on Sad Times. You've been listening to a fourth hand joint.